going to read the Bible for you now. Uh, the Bible reading tonight is Psalm 51, uh, if you'd like to follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. Uh, psalm 51 is for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and, restore, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that by your spirit we can understand it. We thank you for the ways that you teach us and grow us. We ask that you'd help us to humble ourselves before your word now. Help me to speak clearly, and Lord, help, also, help each of us, Lord, to, to hear your word and to respond in faith. We love you, Lord, and we ask this trusting in your power. Amen. So what makes someone a genuine follower of God? If you ask that question uh, around the world, if you just uh, walked, uh, talk to people on the street, if you ask that question, most people would say that being a good person is what makes somebody a follower of God. Nearly all of the major religions in the world, all of them actually except for one, would say that being a good person is key to being a follower of God. Whether it's following the law, following rules, or obeying commandments, uh, most people would, would put that as their, as their initial answer. But the Bible gives us a different message. The Bible says that no one is actually good enough to be a follower of God. 
You can't be a good enough person. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's holy standard. So no one is good enough. There aren't good enough people out there. Now add on to that, the Bible continues to say in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. So for everyone who has sinned, they deserve righteous punishment before a righteous God who's been offended. But Romans 5, 8 gives us the good news. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So for those who were still in their sin, God saw it good to send his son to die on the cross in our place. And so now, Romans 10, verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And that's the good news of the Bible. That's the, that's the message of the Bible. You can't be good enough, but if you recognize that, that Jesus has died in your place, then you can receive the forgiveness of God based on the, the payment that Jesus made for you. That's what we call repentance. This is the message of repentance. Repent of your sins, turn away, away from your sins, and follow after God. Not by being good enough, but by trusting that Jesus took your place for the punishment that you deserved. Now, even then, though, those who follow the Bible often think that a person comes to faith by repentance and then keeps the faith by being a good person. So we certainly do come to faith by repentance, believing in the gospel, the good news that I just explained. That is the starting point of the Christian life. But sometimes we feel like it's the end point. Sometimes we feel like someone needs to finally accept the gospel and then, then they'll be able to live a holy life. So here you have your life before following God. You listen to the message of the Bible. You repent of your sins. You trust that Jesus can save you from your sins. You enter into a life of faith and then you pretty much have it sorted out and you live a, a holy life. Sometimes we fall into that th line of thinking. But that's kind of like saying that the end of physical pregnancy is the birth of a child. So in a sense that's true, but the purpose of pregnancy isn't the birth, isn't to end the labor. The purpose of the pregnancy is to have a, a life lived, a new life created that can live and make choices in the world. So really the birth of the child is only the beginning of a person's life. And likewise with spiritual birth, so the acceptance of the gospel, repentant faith, is only the beginning of spiritual life. The gospel is accepted through humble repentance, but the gospel is lived out through repeated humble repentance. So not repeating the original repentance for salvation, we don't need to repeat that, but rather regular, humble repentance, even in little things, is the mark of a true follower of God, is a mark of the true follower of God. So let me give you a personal example. It's not one that's very glamorous for me, but we, we have five children, as you heard earlier, and we travel a lot. We spend a lot of time in the car, and with five children in a small enclosed space, sometimes it's less than peaceful for the driver. And I'm often driving, and in those moments, sometimes my patient run, patience runs thin, and I find myself snapping in anger either at my wife or at one of my kids. Now, I'm a follower of Jesus, 
I have made the, the decision to trust in Jesus for my salvation. And so now that leaves me with, with three choices, really. If I've just snapped in anger at my wife or at one of my kids, I have three choices. First, I can hang my head and I can enter into depression and I can ask myself, how can you call yourself a follower of Jesus if you haven't even conquered your anger yet? That's one option. Or, option number two, I can stiffen myself. I can say, if they weren't so frustrating, then I wouldn't have gotten angry. They provoked me. And so I was justified in my anger, and I will not apologize for it. That's an option. Or, I can recognize that sin is sin. I can humble myself, and I can repent. I can say, I'm sorry for speaking like that. I can humble myself and, and ask forgiveness of my wife. I can repent to God, and I can ask forgiveness for my child. And let me tell you, it's humbling to ask forgiveness from a three-year-old. <laughs> but I've done it more times than I care to count. Because the Christian life is a life of regular, repeated, humble repentance. In the words of Psalm 51, it's a life lived with a broken and contrite heart. So let's look now at how this played out for David. So Psalm 51 is what we call a penitential psalm. And that just means that it's a psalm that focuses on forgiveness, on repentance of sin and asking forgiveness of God. Now, I've, now uh, Psalm 32 last week is also a penitential psalm. Psalm 6, Psalm 25, there are several of them. And any of them is a great place to turn if you feel like you need to repent of something and you don't know how to express it. I've gone to Psalm 51, honestly, probably more than any other psalm uh, in uh, the book of Psalms at times throughout my life. It can help you pray through repentance. It can help you uh, vocalize what you don't know how to vocalize. So Psalm 51, at the beginning, it says that it's a psalm of David when Nathan approached him about the incident with Bathsheba. So let me set the, set the stage here. So what we have in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is you have David, King David, king over all of Israel, who is at the height of his power and authority. So God has anointed him, God has established him, God has given him his throne, and God has united his kingdom under him. And God has conquered all of his enemies, and God has given him riches and prosperity, and peace, generally peace. He's still conquering those who are um, stubborn, but, but generally he has peace in his kingdom. He's at the height of his, uh, of his prosperity. And in that time, it's during the summer, the time when kings go out to war, so David sends out his army because this neighboring kingdom uh, hasn't quite submitted fully, and so he sends out his army to take care of that neighboring kingdom. David stays back in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And in the cool of the day, David is walking on a, a rooftop, and he looks and he sees a beautiful woman. And so he desires that woman, and he sends some of his servants to go and inquire who she is. And he finds out that she's another man's wife. And her name is Bathsheba. Her husband, Uriah, is actually one of David's soldiers who is out right now, right at that moment, fighting for David. And now in that moment, David has two choices. Either he can say, she's another man's wife, hands off. Okay. Or he can say, I'm the king, 
and I can do what I want to do. And unfortunately, he chooses the latter. So he calls, he takes Bathsheba, he sleeps with Bathsheba. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And now he has another dilemma on his hands. So now he has to decide, is he going to cover this up? Or is he going to humble himself and admit that he committed a sin? Unfortunately, he decides to cover it up. Long story short, he actually kills Bathsheba's husband, his soldier, and then he takes Bathsheba to be his own wife. Now in that time, David is still seen by all the the people, he is still seen as God's anointed king over Israel. He's still seen as a man who is living for God. And so he's sitting on his throne in hypocrisy, having stiffened himself and decided that he's going to do what he wants to do. Now at that time, in comes a man named Nathan. Nathan was a prophet, and he came in to address the king in his sin. But he was wise enough not to start throwing stones at the king. Instead, he tells a story. And what he tells David is, is he tells a story of two men, a rich man and a poor man. And the poor man had one little sheep, just one. It ate from his table. It slept in his bed at night. It was like one of his children, this little sheep. The rich man had many sheep. And one day, visitors came to the rich man. And instead of taking one of his many sheep to eat for his visitors, he goes and he takes that one little sheep from that poor man. And he kills the sheep and he serves it to his guests. Now when David hears this, he is outraged. He's livid. And he says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are that man. He says, God has given you everything. He's given you all that you see around you. He's given you your kingdom. He's given you your position. He's given you peace in the land. And if all of that had been too little, all you needed to do was ask him for more. And he would have added to it. But you didn't ask. You took. And so now you stand judged. And David, now in this moment, he has another decision to make. Either he stiffens himself, he hardens himself, he says, who are you to, to, to address me, God's anointed king? He could have said that. That's what the majority of the kings of Israel would do later. But instead of that, he humbles himself and he says, I have sinned before God. And in that moment, Nathan says, you're forgiven. He didn't say, go and offer all these sacrifices and then you'll be forgiven. He didn't say, put on sackcloth and fast for 40 days and then you'll be forgiven. David had committed this heinous sin. He confesses and repents of that sin and in that moment, he's forgiven. Now by all accounts, David was a genuine follower of God at the beginning of 2 Samuel 11. He fell into sin, he murdered, he conspired, he abused his authority, but then when he had the choice, either to harden himself or to repent, he chose to repent. David knew, one of my favorite verses, maybe he didn't know it word for word, but he knew the principle. 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. David could have said, what you're addressing in me is not sin for me, I'm above that, but he didn't. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the gospel. This is repentance. It's the message we cling to. And it's the message that is the starting point now for Psalm 51. See, all of this happened, and then David wrote Psalm 51. So we see that, God, that David knew much of the gospel. He didn't know it perfectly, uh, but he knew it better than many of us know it at, at, at times, I think. He grasped major tenets of it. It's, the gospel is what makes Psalm 51 possible. So today, looking at Psalm 51, what I want to, or tonight rather, what I want to point out is two things. I want to point out first, what does it mean to be humbly repentant? And second, what is the fruit of humble repentance? So David, in all of this situation, now he writes this psalm. Let's look first at what it means to be humbly repentant. What is David's new and constant position now before God? And I want to start with verse 4. Verse 4 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, how could David say that he had only sinned against God when he had just murdered a man and committed adultery and involved all these other people in this conspiracy of sin? This doesn't minimize the sin that David had committed, the crimes that he had committed against other people, but it does point to God as the ultimate judge. You see, David wouldn't stand before Bathsheba in judgment. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, would not be judging David. David would stand before God on his righteous throne and David would be judged. And he recognized this. And so it's the starting point uh, of David's perspective. It points to God as the ultimate judge and David is humbled before this ultimate judge. In verse five, David says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It points to our sinful nature. Sin isn't something that we do. Sin is something that we are. It's not learned, it's not external, it's a part of our identity. And David, when he coveted and stole and conspired and murdered, he didn't do it all as an abnormal, once-off slip-up for somebody who is generally a good guy. When he did all of that, it was 100% in keeping with his nature as as a sinful man. It was in character with his inherited sinful nature. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that even includes God's anointed King David. Now, continuing to stack up against him, against us, we see verse 6. So first we see God is a holy and righteous judge, and we have a sinful nature. Now we see in verse 6, you desired faithfulness even in the womb, and you taught me wisdom in that secret place. So God has these holy standards that we could never attain standards of faithfulness, standards of wisdom, God has given us a bar to which we will never reach. We set the bar way down here. Jesus taught us. He said, you have heard it said, do not, uh, do not get angry. Or sorry, do not murder. Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not murder. I tell you, don't even get angry because that's murder in your heart. Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. That bar is too low. I tell you, don't even look at someone lustfully because you've committed adultery in your heart. Now let me just, as a quick aside, let me say that pornography is lust. Pornography is adultery in God's eyes. And so 
If you're looking at pornography, stop it. So David recognized that God's standard is way above our standard. So now we look at verse 3. David knows all his transgressions and his sin is always before him. So David knows his sin nature. He knows his specific sins in this situation. He knows God's holiness and God's holy standard. And now, in verse 3, it gives us what I reckon is a key to David's confidence that he's expressing throughout this psalm. See, David says here, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now, our culture is constantly telling us to put our sin behind us, saying if you've done something wrong, put it behind you. Leave the past in the past. Never look back. But David said that his sin is always before him. He keeps it always before him. That doesn't mean that David is self-abasing. He's always depressed because he can never do anything right. That'd be focusing on himself, not on God. What it does mean is that David is constantly aware of his own sinful nature. He's constantly aware that he has failed to live up to God's holy standard. He's failed to live a holy life. He is constantly aware that he can only stand by God's mercy. And so he is constantly humbled, and God is constantly made great. That's what it means to have your sin always before you. See, when your sin is always before you, then you walk with a broken and contrite heart. We'll walk in humility before a holy God. We will always be aware that we stand only on unmerited mercy, not on our own strength. And I reckon this is one of the main points, maybe the main point or lesson from this psalm. The Christian life is not about coming to faith by dependence on God's grace and then keeping the faith by dependence on our own strength. The Christian life is rather about regular, repeated, humble repentance. So you will fail to perfectly keep God's law. You'll fail again and you'll fail again. The true believer is not one who doesn't stumble, but one who is humbly, repeatedly repentant every time that they do fall into sin. And so we repeatedly receive God's mercy by God's grace. So do you see how that makes him greater? So it makes God greater every time that we are made weaker. Every time that we humble ourselves, we admit that God's mercy is great enough to save even me. In verse 1, that's how David was able to appeal to God's abundant mercy, his great compassion, his unfailing love. He's not appealing based on his merit. He's not saying, I deserve these things. He knows what he deserves, and he knows that he deserves God's wrath. But he's asking for God's mercy because God is abundantly merciful. In 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is abundantly merciful great in compassion, unfailing in love. This is what it means to rest in humble repentance. It means to make him constantly greater by our constant humility. So if that is humble repentance, now what is the fruit of humble repentance? Well, humble repentance brings complete forgiveness. In verses 1 and 9, David asks that his sin be blotted out. He knows that the extent of God's mercy is not simply forgiveness, while God continues to remember our sins. So that would be uh, the mercy of man. So if you sin against another person and you go and you ask forgiveness from that other person, they might forgive you, 
but they'll always remember that you let them down once. They'll always remember that you're just a little bit untrustworthy. They'll never forget the time that you sinned against them. Not so with God. Isaiah 43.25 says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. How remarkable is that? God removes our sins so far from us, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God removes our sins from us. He blots out our transgressions. We are completely forgiven. And only the gospel, only the message of Jesus and the story of Jesus' life tells us what it really cost God to blot out our sins. In Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, it says, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. He took away our sin debt which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life and died a horrific death. And he did it in order to nail your sins to the cross. That's what it costs God to completely forgive us. So that's a fruit of humble repentance. Humble repentance also brings cleansing. And I hope you see that one fruit flows into the next. First, you're completely forgiven and you're cleansed. We see it all throughout this psalm, verses 2, 7, 9, 10. David is concerned all throughout with being cleansed from the impurity of his sin. In verse 10, David asks God to create in him a pure heart. Now, in asking God to create a pure heart, David is asking God for a miracle. He's not just saying, put me back on my feet. He's not just saying, dust me off and point me in the right direction. He's asking God to purify his heart, to make his heart into something that it previously was not, to yearn for something it previously didn't yearn for. And if you have ever read the book of Ezekiel, hopefully this will make you think of Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and caused you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So David is humbly, wisely asking God to create in him a new heart, a pure heart that will yearn for the things of God and not for the things of this world, not for the things of his sinful nature. This is what it means to be cleansed by God. David knows that that's the very thing that God desires to do. Humble repentance brings complete forgiveness, brings cleansing, it brings true joy. We see this in verse 12, where David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It's the joy of your salvation, the joy of God's salvation. It's not my salvation. Repeatedly humbly repenting ourselves, sorry, repeatedly humbling ourselves to repentance restores the joy in the fact that we receive salvation not based on merit, but based on his grace. If you can picture anyone who has become a uh, Christian recently, then I hope that you you can picture someone who is filled with joy. I remember when I first became a believer, I had previously felt the burden of all of my sin. I felt weighed down. And then when I came to realize that Jesus could save me from my sin, if I just humbled myself, then the burden was gone. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It brings us to song, just like Jonathan said in his sermon last week. The right response to faith, to forgiveness, is song. 
It brings us true joy. Another fruit of humble repentance. It brings us bold, sorry, bold testimony. So flowing from all of this, now in verse 13, David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. So who better to teach forgiveness than a real sinner who has been really forgiven and who was so humiliated in the process that they have no self-righteousness to stand on? That's the kind of person that you want to teach people what it means to follow God. Now in the Psalms, references to transgressors and sinners usually refers to members of the covenant people of God who are not currently living faithfully. So here David is saying, just as Nathan addressed me in my sin, so I will address others who are sliding into sin. He's saying, I will not stand aside while sin contaminates God's people. Now one commentator pointed out that in human terms, the only thing, there's only one thing that stood between that hardened David of 2 Samuel 11 and the humble David of Psalm 51. And that one thing in earthly terms is Nathan, the prophet who went and spoke a timely word and God's word changed David's life and changed, uh, you, you can see the transformation in David and that transformation points to the power of God's word. God's word changes hearts. And so just as David's seeing this here, we too have the responsibility to maintain the purity of the church, to hold one another accountable, to wisely, boldly, humbly address sin before it corrupts beyond repair. So let me ask you, are you humbly asking others to hold you accountable for areas where you know you struggle with sin? And are you humbly holding other people accountable in order to help them in their fight against sin? It's a, it's a function of the church that we should be building each other up. So we do it as David, as a real sinner who has really received real mercy and doesn't have a leg of our own to stand on. But we have to do it. Continuing fruit, humble repentance brings blessing on the people of God. David knows that sin has consequences. Nathan told him, as a result of his sin, that the child would die, the child that he had with Bathsheba, that first child would die as a result of his sin. Nathan told David that he would have turmoil in his house. And David knew that turmoil in the house of the king means turmoil in the land. It's just the way it works. And we see this in the church as well. We see suffering because of other people's sin. So each member in the church contributes, or, contributes to or detracts from the health of the whole. So again, what is your contribution? Are you contributing to the health of the whole body? Or are you detracting from it? Or are you sitting aside and saying other people will do the work? Because that's actually detracting from it. That's, that's atrophy. That's not engaging. But we each have a responsibility to one another to build up the church. God is abundant in mercy. He is unfailing love. He is great in compassion. And so even despite the consequences for sin, David knew that he could call on God not just to not punish the people, but even to bless the people. As we see in verse 18, that Zion would prosper, that Jerusalem would be built up. Continuing on, my last fruit of repentance. Humble repentance brings thankful, thankful living and it enables acceptable sacrifice. So verse 16 shows unacceptable sacrifice filled with hypocrisy and pride. 
religion is unacceptable in God's eyes. Verse 17 shows acceptable sacrifice. What is the sacrifice that's pleasing to God? It's a broken and and contrite heart. That is humble repentance. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's religion, saying that I can be good enough that I don't have sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is humble repentance, confessing your sins and asking God for forgiveness and cleansing. And so here in verse 19, I always used to think it was strange that it ends, verse, uh, Psalm 51, that it ends with offerings of bulls on the altar. But in the terminology of the day, what that's saying is that offerings made in thankfulness and praise because of mercy received are acceptable in God's sight. Not offerings done out of duty or obligation in order to receive mercy, that's unacceptable in God's sight. But God does delight in right sacrifices and right sacrifices flow from humble repentance. So God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your time. He doesn't need those things. But when you have received mercy from God and out of that mercy flows a desire to give your money to a good cause for God's glory, he is pleased with that. Spending your time teaching others, witnessing to people for Christ. These are all opportunities to lay down our own selfish desires to serve ourselves and rather to serve others. So I've been repeating a phrase all throughout the message. I've said multiple times, humble repentance. And I've emphasized that I'm not just talking about initial humble repentance, but rather repeated, regular humble repentance. And so what does it mean for you to be regularly, repeatedly, humbly repentant? David wasn't marked by perfection. I'm not marked by perfection, and you're not marked by perfection. A follower of Jesus is not marked by perfection. And so we shouldn't pretend that we have it all together. A follower of Jesus, rather, is marked by striving for perfection while walking in humility and repentance. When you sin, you should grieve it, and you should take steps to avoid it in the future. If there are habits that you have that lead you regularly into sin, then cut them off and gouge them out. If you struggle with pornography, then stop spending time alone on the internet. Put guards on your devices. Ask somebody to hold you accountable. If you know that you're irritable, When you're tired, then stop staying up late watching television. Make life changes in order to minimize your temptation to sin. Strive against sin, but when you do sin, admit that sin is sin. Even in small ways, admit it. Humble yourself before God and before the ones that you've just sinned against. And it doesn't mean just saying, sorry. It means, I'm sorry, please forgive me. It's a lot harder to add on that, please forgive me. But you'll find that you'll do more to show the power of God through your humility than you ever could have done with a pretense at perfection. So as John said in his first letter, he said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So brothers and sisters, let's rest in him. Rest in him humbly, And let's rest in him repeatedly. Let's pray.
Lord God, we thank you that we can come to you in humble repentance. Thank you that you are a God who delights to show abundant mercy, unfailing love. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for the, for the sacrifice that you gave on the cross so that we could come before you. Please, Lord, help each of us to walk in humble repentance, knowing that we don't rest in our own strength, knowing that you are the one uh, who saves us, you are the one who, who sustains us. Be glorified in our lives, we ask now, in Christ's name. Amen.